Hello, I'm Michael H. Seabury, host of Artroverted, a podcast about the art world. Each week, I speak with leaders and changemakers in the arts, from artists to museum directors and everyone in between. We discuss their experiences, the communities they serve, and why they've dedicated their lives to art. This week, I speak with Charlie Adimsky Hawkins, Vice President and Head of Office of Sotheby's in Dallas. When we spoke in May, the art world was on pause and marquee auctions were canceled. In our conversation, Charlie talks about her ascent up the auction house ladder, starting at Christie's in New York as a cataloger, to leading the San Francisco office, and ultimately switching sides to join Sotheby's and reestablish their Dallas office. This episode was recorded on May 14th, 2020. So without further ado, let's jump in. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm excited to be here. I know I can speak for many in Dallas that we're so thrilled to have you here. And uh, I know you've had a very distinguished career in auctions at Christie's and Sotheby's, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But I just wanted to start off by asking you how you got into the arts. I would say it probably started um, being raised in an environment where the arts were part of our life. Um, I danced growing up. My parents took us to museums. Probably if you had asked us at a young age, we were being dragged to museums. Um, You know, just I have memories of going to the Met and spending time in each of the galleries. And uh, whenever we traveled abroad, making sure we hit all the museums. And so it was just instilled early on that this was something that was important and that needed to be focused on. And um, I guess it stuck and I count myself very fortunate to um, have made a living out of dealing with beautiful cultural things. So um, yeah, I would say that's where it started. The the art world is a large place and I feel like there's a place for everyone, Mm -hmm. but it's hard to make it. And that's kind of part of my wish for this project. What was your first job in the art world? When I studied abroad while I was in college, I studied abroad in a town called Trier in Germany. And um, each of the students who were in this program got an internship that uh, applied to their major. And I helped the local museum do translations of their art labels from German into English and proofreading them. So it was sort of a fun way to use my language skills. I also speak German. My parents are German. Um, I was actually born in Austria. So I have that cultural heritage um, inside of me. Uh, So it was fun to put that together with the art and actually spend time with the art and think about how do you really tell the story of something in a different language and use the right words. Uh, So that was my first, um, I guess, you would call it a job. It was a little internship. Um, but I would say the first job where I got paid was at the Neue Gallery in New York, an amazing uh, German art museum. And I worked in different areas of the museum. I worked as um, to support the administrator of the museum. So doing all sorts of different things, everything from getting coffee to sorting mail uh, to showing VIPs around the museum. And eventually I moved my way to visitor services where I was interacting with, which seems so strange to think about now in this time that we're in, in this COVID-19 world, interacting with hundreds of people a day who were visiting the museum, telling them where to go, helping them buy their tickets and that sort of thing. And it was really a neat experience to be part of the inner working of that museum because it gave me a good sense of what it takes to make those places run. And yeah. Was the material that you were translating uh, object labels for, was that, was that material that you had studied that you were familiar with? 
Not really. I mean, Trier is a small town. There was some very historical material, probably some medieval things. Um, but I think it was everything from sculpture to painting. And it wasn't a very long internship, but it was sort of the first time um, that I was in that art setting in a work environment. I think that's always a fun project. I was able to, when, when I worked at a museum mm-hmm. in Mexico, I did the same thing. I was translating labels and I realized that the labels that were written for the small exhibition were awful. And so I kind of rewrote them. And so I thought, you know, the English speaking visitor to the show is getting a totally different experience. And uh, I don't know if, you know, there's sometimes things in Lost in Translation or if you just go totally off script, that can be really fun. Right, right, right. So what do you do now? So so now, as you said, I head up the Sotheby's office for Dallas. Uh, basically, what that means is I'm boots on the ground for the company. Um, I'm the face of the company locally. I attend events. I keep my finger on the pulse. Um, I work with clients who are buyers uh, in all of our categories or sellers in all of our categories. I help build relationships for the company uh, facilitate appraisals, um, just form this, help inform the strategy for Texas as a whole. I have a colleague who sits in Houston. Um, and even though she and I sit in different cities, we cover all of Texas. So I travel from Austin from time to time and I'm in Fort Worth all the time, um, and San Antonio and beyond. So it's, it's a role that requires many different hats. But I enjoy being involved in all those different areas. Uh, My background is as a contemporary art specialist. Uh, Prior to this, I was in San Francisco and working with clients in the contemporary art field there. But now I have the joy of working with clients who collect old masters, impressionist modern, American paintings, jewelry, watches, wine. Um, And there's really been a high learning curve. And it's it's been wonderful to work with clients in all those different uh, areas. And how did you get from the Noya Gallery, which is a fantastic private museum, to the auction world? So one thing that I learned working in a museum was that the pace was incredibly slow to a certain extent. Of course, the visitor services side of it was was very um, sort of immediate in the moment. But there was a curator that I helped every now and then, and she was working on projects that were four or five, even 10 years out. And in my mind, that wasn't really something that was that appealing to me. I needed to have a little bit more um, of a pace and I wanted to be part of an, an active um, market. So my mentor at the museum connected me with someone at Christie's. And from there, I was just persistent. You know, I kept bugging them until they had a job for me. So I started as an administrator in a department called the Interiors Department. I don't think it's all that anymore, but um, it was sort of the catch-all estate department that had a sale every single month, thousand lots. And it was the best way to get a crash course in how this business works and dealing with all different facets of that business. So it sort of happened very naturally, um, the transition. And, you know, thinking back now, it it is sort of amazing that I found my way so easily into something that I find quite exciting and challenges me every day. I really enjoy doing. Certainly. Uh, I I totally understand that the pace is completely different. I worked on a project that was a nine-year project in the making. I was part of the last three years and it's definitely very slow. Yeah, but it's incredible. You know, I admire the the scholars and the community that works on that. You really have to have vision. How are you going to know that an exhibition that you're putting together five years from now is going to be relevant? And amazingly, um, you know, the, the curators 
keep doing it. And it's, um, it's really impressive. It just wasn't for me. I, I, I like the people side of it. And, um, you know, I like building relationships and it's sort of amazing to build relationships here and then go to New York and be the eyes and ears for clients that I work with here. So that side of it, I knew I wasn't really going to get if I had stayed in the curatorial. Yeah, working with people and objects every almost yes. every day is really <laughs> fun. Um, I'm an object person and it's it's fun to do that. How did you get into the contemporary art part of the, the market? Yeah, I mean, I started at uh, Christie's in fall of 2006. So 2007 would have really been height of what was happening in the contemporary market. You're talking about auction catalogs that are, you know, like three inches thick, glossy, lots of pages. Everything's really lavish and um, really high prices being achieved. So contemporary was um, a very successful market at the time. Um, I think I found my way there in a more organic sense. So when I worked in interiors, I was exposed to all different areas. And I kept coming back to contemporary because I really liked the idea of a living and breathing field. Artists were living, galleries were building those markets, collectors who were really following artists and supporting them. And that's what really drew me in. You know, the, the importance of expertise and working together with galleries to make sure artwork is installed correctly. And thankfully, I was given an opportunity um, after being with Interiors for a few years and doing a training program at Christie's. Uh, to start in the contemporary department as a cataloger. Given that opportunity was amazing. And um, I was able to, you know, really dive in and, and get more into that field. And you moved up gradually and ended up on the West Coast as were you the head in San Francisco? That's quite a jump to go on the other side of the country. How, how did that happen? What was that like? Yeah, so... Um, by the time, let's see, just think back to the calendar. So um, I think it was 2012 or so um, when I was thinking about, um, I'm sorry, 2012, I was head of the first open sale, which is the mid-season sale um, at Christie's. And um, things were going well, exciting. Um, and my husband was actually going to business school in San Francisco. And at first they said, see you later. I'll see you in two years, come back. Then after a while, we thought more and more about it. Um, it just made more sense for, for me to join him out there and be part of that experience with him. And um, I was able to build a role for myself in the San Francisco office of Christie's um, working as the contemporary art specialist on the West Coast. So I worked together with the team that was already there um, and came in as the contemporary art expert. I mean, one thing that um, is really apparent working in a region is that, you know, one hand, the relationships are great and it's really important to um, work well with clients, but clients also want to meet experts. And um, being able to bring in an expert, someone who knows how to look at paintings, knows how to look at condition, can talk a little bit about the market, has some history with the market, um, was really something that, um, you know, that helped the team out there. And we we did a lot of great projects together um, while I was there. And it, it was, it, it's great fun. And it, it's funny, San Francisco and Dallas are very different places in many respects, um, culturally, politically, um, ge geographic is you know the geography is completely different um, but they both are sort of small but mighty com communities when you compare them to LA or New York um, and I you know I've, I really am feeling a similar experience to getting to know a community being here now and it's been it's been really great. 
I know that the West Coast, uh, especially San Francisco, has it's very far from New York and it has always uh, been fairly or unfairly uh, thought of as kind of a second or third fiddle to um, the other large contemporary art markets in the country. What was the right. market like there for contemporary art uh, and, and what was it like when you left? I think it's a very interesting city. I mean, to be completely honest, when I was leaving New York, I thought I was, you know, like, what am I doing? New York is the only place for people of art. So not true, not true at all. And I, you know, I feel horrible even admitting that. Um, but San Francisco is an interesting environment because you have a really long legacy of amazing collectors. Um, you know, and you, you go to SFMOMA and you look at some of the names on the walls. I mean, these are families who, um, you know, like the Fisher family, um, you know, families who really have been collecting for many, many years, generations, and have amassed some of the most important um, contemporary art collections, um, arguably, in the world. Um, so you have that contrasted with a very large, young, high net worth community, which everybody likes to say doesn't care about art and, you know, doesn't want to be in the, involved in the museum world, um, which is not necessarily true, I think. Um, I think it's just a matter of time. Um, you know, each of us are busy. And when you're young and you're running a company, you don't have a lot of time to spend looking at art and, and buying art and all these things. So a lot of my time was spent uh, thinking about how do we um, build relationships and um, get into that community. And there was, it did evolve in the five or six years that we were there. Um, I think there was a change um, in the number of individuals. I mean, I hate using, you know, bucketing people in like the tech community and that sort of thing. But um, I think there there was an increase in, um, you know, younger people who were becoming involved in the art world. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of growth there. Um, but I think it's also hard when the outside world buckets everybody into their little areas without looking, dive, taking a deeper dive to understand really where the motivations are and and, and and all that. So absolutely, but first you moved from after cutting your chops at uh, Christie's to move to then Sotheby's, and they are they are the duopoly. And I'm wondering if you uh, a lot of people do that. And I'm wondering if you could talk about kind of the little rivalry and how that works. Well, it's funny because all of a sudden people who have been your, you know, main competitors and enemies, not really enemies, but you know what I mean? All of a sudden they're your colleagues and you get to know them and you think to yourself, wow, these are actually really nice, cool, interesting, intelligent people. Um, so that's sort of a funny thing. Um, you know, it, the art world is small and there are a lot of people who have worked in both houses. Um, a lot of the people I work with now, um, I actually worked with when I was at Christie's. Um, and some of the people that, uh, you know, I used to work with here are now there. So there's there's a lot of movement back and forth and it's a really small world. Um, that said, the companies, when I joined, Sotheby's was still public. So that was, you know, a different aspect um, than Christie's. Um, it was, run a little bit differently. I um, felt like it had a little bit more of like an innovative feel to it. Um, there was a more focus on technology and um, that sort of thing. Um, I felt like there was a really great 
focus on building the regions um, and empowering the regional heads to really um, build a good strategy and um, to get out there into the communities. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, the house, houses are very similar in many ways. Um, but I, I do think now looking at what's happened over the last few months, um, I do think Sotheby's has been more successful in being nimble in dealing with all of this. I mean, now everybody else is doing online sales as well, but we were the first ones to say, look, we have sales coming up. They're going to go from live to online. And, you know, we were the first ones too to say, okay, we're going to do our live sales and our big contemporary sales in June. Um, they're going to be in New York and we're going to, then we're going to do some sales in Hong Kong. Um, so, We've been very nimble through all of this. It's been sort of incredible what the technology has been able to do. Um, and I don't know, there just is a spirit of innovation, which which I think I feel more um, being at Sotheby's. But I don't know if that's just since my role was a little bit different than before when I was stuck in a warehouse, just cataloging things, you know, that, it, that I'm just interacting with my colleagues and the company in a different way. Right. I love that. Yeah. Sotheby's has definitely been ahead of the curve uh, with technology. And that's something I want to touch on uh, in a second. Um, but your arrival in Dallas two years ago for Sotheby's was uh, a significant move for reestablishing themselves in the market. They'd been on a hiatus. I don't know how long, maybe a decade at least. Yes, it's been a decade. Yeah. And Christie's has been very entrenched in Dallas for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to know how, what, what challenge that presented you with and, and how you're able to do that. Cause you're, you're certainly a fixture of Dallas now. <laughs> well, I'm, get, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I would, you know, working on it. Um, yeah, of course, it's challenging to join a new community where you don't know anybody. Um, but I'm indebted to some great collectors who were very supportive when when I first arrived. And of course, Sotheby's for art collectors is a household name. If you're buying at Christie's, you're usually also buying at Sotheby's. Um, so I think it was helpful to be a known quantity. Um, I think people really appreciated having boots on the ground again um, and having another person to talk to. Um, I think in any competitive situation, it's always good to have multiple um, individuals to approach. Um, But yeah, I think a lot of it is just being visible, getting out there, um, getting to know people. I think my expertise has been really helpful to getting to know contemporary art collectors, connecting with curators. And yeah, I, I I don't think my work is done by any means. Um, you know, it's only been two years. And I don't know, I would say in San Francisco, it, it took me a few years to feel like I really knew everybody and had a hold on everything. And everything that's going on in the world right now is certainly going to influence well how we do business. You know, are, are there going to be big openings anymore? Are we going to be able to hold traveling exhibitions and host events to have clients visit? I mean, all these things we have to revisit and, and rethink, which, you know, it's not a bad thing to be pushed into innovation and taking a step out of the usual. But yeah, I, I mean, we've I really enjoyed Dallas. I like being here. I like the people. I think it's a really, you know, exciting collecting community. Uh, and I would include Fort Worth in that too. Whenever I say Dallas, I would also include Fort Worth. I mean, probably two. <laughs> I probably shouldn't include them into one one group. That's, that's my ignorance as the outsider. But um, There's a little bit of a rivalry, but not as much as between Houston. But luckily, you don't have I know, to. I know. I'm, I'm, to I'm learning. I'm learning these things. Um, but I, I do think that between the two cities, this area is incredibly robust. I mean, think about the institutions. What other parts of the world have five major institutions that are, you know, major players in the world? Um, and 
the collectors are interested, they're tapped into what's going on into the rest of the world. Um, so there's there's a lot going on here. And it's a it's a great place for business. And I think, you know, because of that, you have a lot of individuals who are able to participate in, in the things that we handle. So yeah, the one thing I love about Dallas, especially in the art world here, is that it's so small, but the ability to gain access is so much easier than a place like New York or Boston or Miami. Yeah. Um, you know, there there isn't a VIP room or a salon at the art fair. You know, they're they're just there, <laughs> right there with you, and you don't have to you don't have to right. buy into a certain room, or or when you do, it's certainly not the same level as of buy-in that uh, is required in, in larger cities. No. So, what's the best part of your job? I would say um, it's constantly being out and about and meeting new people. Very rarely am I sitting at my desk all day. Um, you know, I, I get to be out in the car having lunch with clients, visiting their home, seeing how they live with art, how they interact with art, um, you know, learn about jewelry that's been in the family for a very long time. And so I, I think it's that aspect, just interacting with people, being out and about, um, both things that will be affected by everything going on in the world. Um, but I do think that that makes it very unique and enjoyable and it allows me to be part of the community and um, build great relationships and become an advisor to clients. Um, so they feel like they can trust me with any advice they might need when it comes to their collecting. I think for many people, that's probably the best job <laughs> in the auction house yeah. relationships, working with people, working with objects as well. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the auction house is notorious for climbing that ladder and it's a very long ladder and it could take many years. And I'm wondering what was your worst station on the ladder? I wouldn't say it's particularly a station. Can I give you a worst situation to deal with? Um, I'm not going to go into specifics, but the worst scenario is when you have to call a client that their artwork was damaged. It's heartbreaking. You know, it happens. I think it's happened twice in a situation where I had to call somebody in the, you know, almost 14 years that I've been doing this. But it's a really tough call to make. And I would say those those are the most difficult scenarios. But that's also part of having a good relationship with the client. You know, you have to be upfront, you have to be transparent. And, you know, these things happen, unfortunately, but it's heartbreaking. <laughs> It's heartbreaking, particularly as the art handlers work hard. I know our shippers work hard. Everybody's really, um, you know, making sure that we minimize anything like that. But unfortunately, it does happen. Yeah, accidents happen for sure. Yeah, I, what I was really wondering was what was your kind of your worst job? Oh, <laughs> that you, had? Uh, you, you know, the... I don't really know if there was a worst job. I mean, there were moments when I was a cataloger in New York in the contemporary department when I'm in the office after midnight in the warehouse by myself in the dark, like scared out of my mind. Like who knows what's hiding behind the stacks um, and you're just tired and there are long days. But, you know, for all the exhaustion at the end of the day, I really enjoyed doing it. So I think I'm pretty fortunate that I haven't had any horrendous work experiences. <laughs> That's a, that's a great advertisement for Christie's right there. <laughs> so we're obviously taping this during the pandemic of COVID-19. Uh, I've been talking to people across the country and many of them on, on the coasts are still in some sort of shelter in place order, whereas Texas is pretty much open for business. I've been in traffic every day that I've gone out uh, this past week. And yeah. I know that Sotheby's postponed the big sales. Yeah, they were actually supposed to be this week. Yeah. 
how is that affecting you and and how do you think we're going to move from there yeah so as i had mentioned earlier um sort of the on the move to online has been a big thing for us i think we've had 40 or maybe 40 plus sales since the shutdown at the beginning of march um and the total came to somewhere around $80 million in sales. So in doing that, you know, clients are still coming and they're buying. Demand is there um, for great objects. Um, I think the highest price item was uh, a Cartier bracelet that sold for just over a million dollars. Um, a few weeks ago, we had a contemporary sale today. I haven't checked the results. Um, but I think there are one or two pieces that sold over a million dollars. So clients are coming when we're putting the offerings out there. There are a number of clients I'm working on private sales with, and um, they have very specific wish lists of what they would like to buy. But it's, in some cases, hard to get the product. Um, so I would say maybe demand is outstriping um, supply at the moment a little bit. Um, of course, business is less than it was. I mean, at this time, last year, we would be having sales that were making hundreds of millions of dollars. But I, I think we've been able to adapt and we just, you find other ways to stay connected. I mean, as you know, April in Dallas is sort of the social month for the art world. So not having all of those events, the art fair, art ball, um, the Nasher Gala, all of these things, um, it was sort of strange to be put on hold and for that pause to happen because for me, that's the time when I'm consistently interacting with people that I'm working with, building new relationships. Um, so it that aspect of it has been a little bit strange, um, but I do think being proactive, reaching out to people, I've had conversations with some people I haven't talked to in a very long time um, because they've found themselves you know, pausing from the craziness of every day. So I think that there is a silver lining I think the June sales will be very telling because we're going to put a lot of material back on the market um, and there will be those live sales, but all signals are pointing towards success because there is a market out there um, and there is a demand. Yeah. Missing um, April, having April basically canceled was really a huge loss personally. That's kind of the, yeah. the most exciting part of the year for art it in is. Dallas. And yeah. Uh, I know I've been making a little wish list of things that I want to do the second that we can actually do all the things that we want to <laughs> do again. And yeah. I definitely can't wait to see some art again. And I saw, uh, it was an article in art news. It was images of museums around the world that are opening. And I believe it was a museum in Spain. They had taped with caution tape on the floor in front of the trains and in the galleries where you can stand to be oh, safe enough distance from, uh, the, you know, each other, not the objects. That's usually what the, what, what the right. problem is. And I, I just couldn't imagine not being safe in a museum uh, or in a gallery and figuring that out, you know, even being safe in an auction room. Uh, I don't know. You know, we'll see what happens with that. That's, yeah, no, it's it's certainly something to think about. And um, yeah, hopefully we just learn more about this virus so we can can do that safely. I think we'll find a way because the art world is not the same without seeing things in person. You know, like no matter how well the technology works, nothing replaces the in-person experience. I mean, that's what it's all about in the end, right? So um, we sort of have to find a way to make that happen, I think. 
in order to go on. Absolutely. We'll see what happens. And there is no substitute for seeing art in person. Absolutely. No matter if we have 3D printers at home and we can 3D print the objects and handle them, you know, it's 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 never going to be the same. No, I'm right there with you. And I think the logistics piece is really going to be the interesting part to figure out because, you know, you can remotely tell me you want to consign your Warhol and I say, great, you know, we FaceTimed. It looks like it's in great condition. But then we have to get the painting somewhere to be professionally photographed and then it needs to be shipped to the buyer. So I think the the people who will shine in all of this are the people who figure out how to get those logistics working. And there's a way to do it. Where there's a will, there's a way. It's just, um, you know, it's going to take some creative thinking. Following the debut of the global live stream auction format, I caught up with Charlie to see how it's changed the market. So much has happened since May when we last spoke. Uh, the marquee auctions were postponed. And then in June, Sotheby's launched the global live format streaming from Hong Kong, London, and New York. Seeing it on screen in that format was uh, almost like watching a sporting event. Uh, I'm wondering, <laughs> what was that like for you? And, and what has the response been? It was exciting. I thought it was very exciting. I was impressed with the technology and how seamless it was and how we were able to capture the excitement of an auction still. So I think it was incredibly well executed. And we actually just had, well, since then, we've had um, a few other of these um, live events. And each time, they're just even more refined and honed in on on what seems to be working. So um, people seem to be responding very well to the format. And um, it's it's been going very well for us. Yeah. And, and people have started copying it. Sotheby's, you had to go first. Did you have to go first? That's just the way the <laughs> calendar is? Or... Uh, it's just, I, I think it just sort of turned out that way that, uh, you know, we decided we're going to go and because we had been having the online sales, uh, since March, um, and nobody else was, and we were prepared to give the live, uh, version a go. And since then, uh, you know, everybody else has been doing it as well. So, um, you know, it's, we were first movers in a sense and proved to everyone that the market was still alive and it, it clearly is still there, uh, which is very exciting for all of us. Yeah. I think, was it? If it wasn't a hundred percent sell through, it was in the in the high nineties, I think, right? This week? Well, uh well the first one in June, but I even think this week was a hundred percent, yeah. Yeah, this week the um impressionist and modern a portion of the sale was a hundred percent sold, which is incredible. I was talking with one of my colleagues and we were laughing at, you know, it took a pandemic getting rid of auction catalogs. You know, having previews that are less attended to to get to this point, um, and uh, it really was incredible the, the response that we had. That's amazing. And I remember you telling uh, me that you were head of uh, one of the day sales, and I've never attended one of those events. And uh, especially the kind of the marquee modern contemporary one is always kind of like a star studded event with art world elite and you know paddles flying everywhere and millions and millions and millions you know going off but now all we see is instead of paddles we see specialists on the phones uh and and a lot of times covering their mouths i'm sure you've been on the phone multiple times what's what's that like it's it's fun it's a lot of fun because you're really in the thick of it and um you know you're you're the go between between the person that you're on the phone with and the auctioneer and it's really exciting to be in the thick of it it's quite exciting. Um, I do miss going back to New York and um, bidding with my clients and being part of the process in that way. And I think it'll come back. Um, but it's it's a really great way to, to be involved. And, um, you know, I, I, I enjoy it. But what's happening when they're covering their mouths? What are, what are, oh, what are we I not think, seeing? What are we not hearing? 
I think they're just, you know, you're, you're trying to have a conversation with somebody on the phone without speaking so loudly that everybody knows what you're saying. You don't want to necessarily reveal what the next bit is going to be, or if you're using somebody's name, you don't want somebody to hear it. It's a little bit left over from when you have a full room and you're standing at a phone bank and about five feet away from you is a full audience of people. So you don't want necessarily want everybody listening to what you're saying. Um, so it's, it's a privacy thing when, when they're covering their mouths. Um, so that, that's sort of where that's, that's coming from. You're having a conversation and you and you go on to mute yourself a little bit so that you can enunciate and, and speak so that the person on the other end can hear you, but without everybody knowing what exactly you're saying. Sure. Yeah. It's gotta be pretty nerve wracking, you know, thinking that you're responsible for replacing that word it is. Or, or, or making that sale. It is nerve wracking, but you get into the routine and, um, you know, the numbers come very naturally. There's a rhythm. If you pay close attention to the way the bidding moves forward, there are set increments. Of course, sometimes we'll break those increments, but there is an expectation of, okay, we now bid this amount and we know that this number is coming next. So you get into a nice rhythm. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into eventually getting it to that telephone bid. You're speaking to the clients beforehand. You're supplying them with all the information that they need to make a decision, helping to sell the work, and then ultimately getting to the point where you're bidding and you don't always know how many bidders are going to be against you. So um, it is it is a very exciting and involved process. Right. So you've already established a pretty good relationship with that person. Yeah. You would have to, I would guess, in order to, yeah. to make this Well, and they're trusting you to yeah. bid on their behalf. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes it happens, too, that you get there and somebody says, you know what? I really don't want to bid. And that, that happens, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it goes both ways. Or sometimes, you know, there are malfunctions where you can't reach somebody on the phone. Um, I'm, I don't know if you've seen that in some of the auctions. Sometimes that happens where the auctioneer gives the phone bidders a little bit more time if they're trying to reach somebody. But for the most part, it's it's a really uh, rewarding process when it, when it works out well. Yeah. And I think the, the format has, I, I, I don't know if chandelier bids, uh, which maybe you, you, you could more eloquently describe what that term is or, or something that was kind of phased out recently before the pandemic, but certainly now you can't, you know, with the screen, you see the auctioneer and then you see the screen he's looking at. I, I think it's next to impossible to kind of take things like that. Yeah, so a chandelier bidding is when the auctioneer throws out some numbers to get the momentum going in the sale room. And um, his goal is to get up to the reserve, which is the lowest amount that a piece can sell for, um, and start getting those bids to, to get the realize the actual price. So you're right. It is hard when you can't say, oh, to the person in the back of the room, because we know who the 10 people are who are standing there. Um, there, there are still ways to get that theatrical component going. And, uh, you know, we're very fortunate to have some extremely talented auctioneers um, with Ollie Barker and Helena Newman. I mean, they've, it's outstanding to see them perform in front of these screens and to think that they're not in a room full of people. They're just looking at computer screens and everything is going seamlessly from a timing perspective. Um, it's, it's a real talent uh, to, to get that going. Right. I, yeah, I think it's got to be surreal, even when you have people in the room. Yeah. People. Uh, I was just going to say... Uh, 
in, in relation to the, you know, the excitement that you're having in those marquee auctions, you're actually also seeing the drama play out in the online auctions. I don't know if you've ever watched one of those sales close, but each lot closes um, consecutively and every minute a new lot closes. And it's actually quite exciting to watch the time go and, you know, the countdown clock until the last bid can be placed. So um, I think you're still finding that excitement in different places. Yeah, I was bidding on a Lalique piece, actually, that I thought was very undervalued. And it's something that is, is a dream for my collection. And and I watched it slip away from my hands on my cell phone. As I was <laughs> drinking my coffee, you know, uh, a year ago. And yeah, that, that excitement's definitely there. But but I think yeah. uh, what, what Sotheby's did in, in June is really kind of taking it up to the next level. Yes, for sure. I have often heard, and people like to say that art comes to auction um, in in three ways: the three Ds, death, divorce, and debt. But now we've added a fourth one. It, it's been there before, but it, it's kind of more in the news: deaccessioning, museum deaccessioning, mm-hmm. which uh, is a practice that museums have always employed, always with a great reserve because it is serious and there are uh, consequences. I mean, you can look at what happened to the. Um, at the Berkshire Museum, you know what happened to them when they tried to sell, or they they sold a Rockwell, and and now they're they're totally ostracized, censured. But the uh, American Alliance of Museum Directors did relax their deaccessioning protocol, allowing museums to to do that for operating purposes, giving them a little more leeway. Right. And um, there's already been a couple. Um, I, I think in the last sale on the 28th, there were pieces from the Brooklyn Museum, the Aspen Art Museum, that piece from the Brooklyn Museum, the Carlo Molino table, which is stunning set of design Incredible. record, yeah. uh, which is really cool. But I think the big news from that sale was that the uh, Baltimore Museum of Art had three pieces that were slated to be sold and um, they, they removed them. I think it was like two hours before. Yeah. What, what do you think about the relationship between deaccessioning uh, and auctions and, and what we're going to see in the future and, and that process? And if you have any experience with that personally? Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't personally involved in any of the uh, consignments that you mentioned that came up this week. So I'm not privy to the, uh, you know, the intimate details, but Auction houses have a long history with museums, working muse- with museums in productive ways. I think deaccessioning is, you know, n- not that uncommon of a thing in general. Um, you know, many museums that are trying to remain relevant in general are thinking about um, what they have in their holdings, what's collecting dust, how do they remain relevant and have a living and breathing um, reflection of, of what they want to bring to the public. I think the problem with the Baltimore Art Museum situation was that that really snowballed um, over the last few days for various different reasons. Um, and unfortunately, they had to halt what they were, were going to sell. But it's been interesting to observe the American Alliance of Museum Directors coming out in April and saying, okay, we're not going to slap you with a sanction if you want to sell something to cover your operating expenses. It's a difficult time for institutions. A lot of institutions have had their doors closed. You know, they're not making money from visitors or uh, membership being renewed um, and all of these different things sponsorship that are normally happening, the world is on a pause. So I admire the directors and the curators who have to make these decisions. They're they're not easy and I don't think they're ever easy. We see ourselves as a partner and you know a company that can help these museums navigate this in the best way possible. But you know, I think it's something that we will see in the future and we have seen in the past. I think it just gets particularly interesting the conversation from a public perspective when you're talking also 
sudden about works that are 15, 20, 30 million dollars. And it's a tough choice. Are you choosing the survival of the institution over selling a work of art? It's, you know, what sometimes there is no choice. So it's, it's not an easy thing. And we have a museum services team that's dedicated to working with museums and it's very well versed. And there's all sorts of different ways that we work with institutions, whether it's doing appraisals or, you know, working on programming or helping with collection reviews and all that sort of things. We love our museum relationships and, you know, we want to be supportive and and help them in any way that we can, especially in this difficult time. It's not easy. And I, I admire all of our institutional partners who are finding ways to navigate and make difficult decisions. I I think you're right. It's mostly the numbers, the value of the works and that's what, and also kind of the big names, but, but survival, these institutions, a third of institutions are not going to survive according to an AAM study uh, that came out. I read that even museums are talking about merging um, and we'll see what the future of that is. But, and, and, and Sotheby's and, and other auction houses, you're just merely the, the conduit and, um, right. And, um, you know, people take, I feel, I feel like people take museums for granted. You know, they think that they're these big mm-hmm. permanent structures that are just, you know, they're going to be there forever. They've been there forever. And, um, you know, yes, if you want to support them, you know, people do. But um, I, I don't think a lot of people, unless you've worked in a museum or, or worked in some capacity with a museum or in the art world, understand how tenable their, right. just their position is. Um, and I think they're under a lot of pressure right now beyond budgetary constraints. I mean, you're, you really want to make sure your collection is reflective um, of diversity and um, lots, lots of different things to take into consideration, which, you know, they're really being scrutinized. It's, it's a lot for them to take on with probably less resources than they had before. So, you know, we love our museums and I hope that the stat you shared earlier is not accurate and that when we like come out of soon. this, that... Yeah, you know, that they're so important to just humanity <laughs> and preserving our culture and society and, and all of that. So I, I think it's a very relevant and timely topic, but not an easy one because every situation is different. And the way you're talking about your museum services team, I imagine, I remember seeing the Monet show at the Kimball and there was this one, there were a couple pieces that said in the credit line, courtesy of Sotheby's and mm-hmm. and. And how that operates and how that works, I'm kind of interested about. But uh, the, there was one, and it had the most beautiful carved frame. It had these, it, it was like a memento mori. It was a still life of these roses and other flowers that were in various states of, of you know, birth and decay. And and I thought, uh, and even every time I, I go to a sale, uh, you know, a preview and see work, I'm like, you know, this is probably the last time I'll ever see this because it'll go uh, <laughs> away or, or it'll go for a long time. Um, and I'm wondering yeah. kind of what that feeling is like. And um, I think it's part of it's it's being part of an ecosystem. You know, the art world is living and breathing. And, um, you know, these work, I mean, if, if half of these artworks could tell the stories of the places they hung, the warehouses they were stored in, um, I think that would be pretty incredible. But it is really great to be able to partner with a museum. You know, I've worked on all sorts of different exhibitions and curators call and say, we need this 
this particular Warhol for a show, or we're looking for, um, you know, a Sicily painting for an upcoming exhibition. And you become the liaison between the museum and the collector and help the museum reach the people that they need to reach. And it's something that that we like to do and and are happy to do. And a lot of collectors are are happy to comply and participate um, and share their work. So I see us as one spoke in this art world wheel um, and I think, you know, every component is necessary to make sure it keeps turning. So obviously with the pandemic, this was something that we didn't talk about, which I think would be kind of interesting to talk about. Just the strategies that you use to sell the work. You know, you would bring pieces on tour, whether it's jewelry or large paintings. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that and other strategies that you, you use to, to sell the work locally and, and how you operate within the global system. Right. It's been incredible this year to really see how much the technology has advanced. I mean, I feel like we've had light years of change in our business that in a normal world, it probably would have taken us a few years to make some of these changes because they wouldn't have felt as urgent. But it's incredible what we've been able to achieve with um, our digital platform. We have um, a new kind of catalog on our website that's interactive through promoting, through Instagram and digital images and videos. I mean, all of that has been very effective. I mean, I'm the first person to say that I, you know, may have even mentioned this when we spoke in March. I don't know how this online thing is going to go. People don't like change, but people have adapted. And it's actually been quite remarkable how many collectors are prepared to buy something just from seeing pictures on our website um, and talking to a specialist. So fundamentally, what we're doing hasn't Change that much. I'm still doing proactive outreach to collectors who I think might be interested in certain works, sharing install shots with them, um, having conversations with them about the market and the pricing and, and how something might fit into their collection. But it is a little bit sad that we're missing the piece of the works traveling. And I think as soon as we can get back into doing that, we will. Nothing, nothing replaces seeing something in person. Um, I don't think that's ever going to change. But for for pieces that are more known quantities and we know what the texture of a piece should look like and um, we know what materials and artists use, that sort of thing. Um, you know, it's, we've, been, we've been chugging along and you see it in the decorative art sales as well. Um, collectors buying from China and our Chinese works of art sale um, and they're not traveling here. Um, jewelry being purchased and watches being purchased without having been seen. Um, so I think people are really getting accustomed to the digital platform and um, interacting with works that way. And we really beefed up our editorial content on the website as well. So there, there's a lot to consume via the technology that we're putting together. And um, I think what's also been remarkable is that we've become more global through this process. 41%, I think it was, 41% of our buyers in the past sales I've been new to Sotheby's, which is a huge number. Normally, I think we're landing around like 15 to 20% in a year or something like that. But we're at 41%. That's a lot of new people who are coming to us who may have been in a normal world, not toward our online offerings. So it's been really incredible to see how, how that's expanded. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think there's probably even a little uh, hesitation about maybe, maybe that's not there anymore about you know, creating an account on the website mm-hmm. and getting pre-approved a bit and thinking like, yes, I too can participate in that. 
And 30% of our bidders are under the age of 40, which I also find to be an amazing stat. So, you know, it kind of makes sense um, in a certain way that it's these generations that have grown up with more technology in their lives. This is just a natural progression for the market and the, and the way to interact with, with the auction house. So we've really been able to capitalize on that and tell stories. And we're getting a little bit more creative on in our sales and having themes and auctions that might only have one work in them. Um, or one diamond, we had a you know hundred carat diamond that we sold at a Hong Kong sale, and it was all by itself in a sale off of no reserve. It did quite well, but and, you know, two years ago we would have never thought of doing something like that. But we're we're finding success, and it's been sort of fun to experiment, I think, um, and be rewarded with with trying all of these different uh, ways of proceeding. Right, and who knows? Maybe we'll get to the point where you're sending people um like uh, you know metadata or code and they, you can 3d print the work and hang it on their wall or do <laughs> ar or something yeah. uh, you know to see it well there, there is there is um a, a function where you can go um and we do this for the marquee sales where you can take a picture of your wall and superimpose a painting which is kind of cool um uh, to test out and see that yeah, too bad the Rothko didn't look good in, in, in my house, the lighting. <laughs> <laughs> you were the bidder that we were missing? <laughs> I was, I was. I know, oh, it's, it, what's the, like, tell, tell me about the mechanics of, of that. Just may, maybe not that piece in general, but, uh, of yeah. you know, when you, when you put something up and you're really excited about it and then it just doesn't sell. It happens. I mean, that's, that's auction. At the end of the day, nobody really knows what's going to happen in the sale room. So there, there always is that element of uncertainty, but um, you know, it happens and there are often sales that happen right after an auction where someone says, Oh, I couldn't get through, or, you know, I might actually be interested now. So it's not the be all and end all when something doesn't sell at auction there, there is a life beyond that and often works are sold um, and after sale or we'll try them again, um, a few months later. So it, it really depends on the work, but, um, you know, it, it is disappointing when, especially when something is sort of the banner image, uh, for a sale, but, um, you know, it's, it's part of it. Yeah. And I think even, uh, private sales, I wonder what part of the bit, like what percentage of the business that is, I don't know what it is, but it's something that Sotheby's has beefed up for sure or, or marketed yeah. a lot more. I mean, it's almost like the buy now you can go in and, and you too, you can enter the private sale, which is something that, uh, we've never even imagined previously. Yeah. I mean, private sales for us have really um, exploded this year. I mean, we've always been strong with them, but this year in particular, we've seen uh, much higher transaction rates, um, you know, and for me here in Dallas too, um, you know, I have clients that I'm working on private sales with. It's just be- becoming part of the narrative when you're talking to a client. Okay. What are the artists you're looking for? Okay. Let's think about auction. We don't have anything at auction. Let's think if we have something in private sale. And a lot of times when we're pitching consignment, we're also actively considering whether auction or private sale is the preferred route. So it's just becoming another way in which we do our business. Um, And in some cases, it's just a better way to do something. You know, if you know that you have a buyer for a work and can get a client exactly what they want within a week, why wait 
you know, three months until you get to the auction when you can deliver for the client right away. So it's been great to offer that additional method for for buying and selling works. And um, it's quite remarkable as a team. We globally, you know, have a have a chat, a WeChat all together, and everybody is constantly throwing out, "Oh, I'm looking for this, I'm looking for that," and you know, happens half the time that I'm have something to sell or something I'm looking for, and a colleague in France or London responds, and it's. The immediacy of it uh, is just, it's kind of fun. And um, it's its very rewarding to be able to deliver for somebody on, on that aspect as well. That's really cool. I can't even, you said that happens weekly or monthly? What, the chat? Uh-huh. It's happening as I speak. My phone is buzzing. Yeah, it's right. I love ongoing. that. I love that. That's, yeah. that's really exciting. I, I um, Yeah, no, yeah. it's it's ongoing. And um, we've actually, so we had a pop-up in East Hampton this summer where we were showing private sale artwork and jewelry and furniture. And we are going to have a private sale pop-up in Palm Beach this winter uh, where we'll be showing the same kind of material. And it's a way that we can get the actual objects to our clients wherever they are. So it's about problem solving and figuring out how do we do this and uh, market the works in the best way possible. So it'll be, it'll be fun to see how um, people react to that as well. Yeah, it's really exciting to see all of the advancements that have that have happened uh, just since we spoke in May. Now we're going to go to the the fun part of the podcast. That that's what I like about. It's called the lightning round. These are just quick questions. Oh no! <laughs> quick, easy questions. Uh, the first one is early bird or night owl. Early bird. Coffee or tea. Coffee. Talking or texting. That's a tough one. <laughs> I would say talking. Facebook or Instagram. Instagram. What's the last book you read? Um, what is the last book I read? I just finished a gentleman. Um, in Moscow. Is that what it's called? Have you read that I've book? I've seen it. Well, um, I haven't read it. Yes. Uh, it's about a gentleman who gets um, on house arrest in the 1920s um, in Moscow in a hotel. And it was actually very interesting. Of course, a different time, Bolshevik era, but sort of the things he grows through living in the space where you can't leave. There were some parallels that were quite interesting. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> I highly recommend it. It's a really good book. What's your first memory in a museum? Um, it is of um, Botticelli's Venus. This is so specific. I was actually thinking about this earlier um, at the Uffizi Gallery. And it was a painting that had really, I don't even remember how old I was. I think it was in high school. Um, it was a painting that I had studied in an art history class. And studying it, I hadn't really gotten a full concept of its scale or its luminescence. And when I saw it in person, it was just so striking because it's a massive painting, beautifully painted. And it was also one of the few paintings in the museum that had this, you know, inch thick plexiglass protecting it in front. Um, and yeah, it's sort of an interesting thing, but that experience has always stuck in my head. And I saw it again, actually, this past summer. Um, which sounds so long ago, having traveled somewhere. Um, and it was actually a little bit smaller than I remember it. So it's funny how these things things go, but it was still incredibly stunning and beautiful. Um, and, it, you know, the, nothing, the Uffizi Gallery is amazing. Yeah, I totally agree. And at least when I saw it, oh, it's been probably... 10 years ago, at least it was kind of like in a corner and it's not something or it, 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 it wasn't, you know, the, like the Mona Lisa where it has its own room. 
Right, right. Yeah, so many yeah. treasures in the Uffizi. What do you collect? So I would say um, most of the things that hang in our home are things um, from our family or like art that my husband and I have done. That sounds more um, exciting than, than it is. Uh, we have a few prints um, that we've bought here from here or there. Um, we have two Ruth Asawa prints. It's an artist who I worked with um, when I was in San Francisco and sort of holds a special place in my heart. So it's sort of great to have two of her pieces. So we try to find things that have a personal connection for us so that we react to personally. Um, it's really funny to go through the experience of collecting with my husband because he doesn't bring all of the art world baggage with him that I do. So I can have a more immediate reaction to something. Um, whereas with him, it might take a little bit more time. I love abstract painting, um, you know, abstract expressionism, take it all day. Uh, but for him, it's a little bit harder. He's like, wait, I want to see, you know, like a crisp Wayne Tebow. That to me is skill. Why is the abstract expressionist so wonderful? So it is funny to have this um, dialogue. Um, and it's something that we would like to spend more time on um, collecting art, but it is hard to find time to do it. And it trying to do it uh, on our own makes me also interact differently with my clients because I realize, um, you know, that it is hard to find time between kids and work and all these things going on. But, um, it is really wonderful to be able to surround yourself with, with some art. Um, you know, even if it's just my son's drawings hanging in the kitchen. So, yeah, we hope we hope to grow our little collection a little bit more. Yeah, I love that. I know that being in the art world and then I love the baggage, you know, you don't bring that baggage, but also kind of trying to sell those pieces to your husband, I'm sure really helps you and in, in working with your clients, trying to, to sell other people on art who don't know much about it and teaches you uh, how to talk about it with yeah. different people. If you weren't working in an auction house, what would you be doing? Oh, man, that's a. I mean... If I weren't working in the art world, what would I be doing? Or if I weren't working... If you weren't doing what you're doing now, what would you be doing? Put it that way. That's a good question. Probably realistically working in like museum development or um, just nonprofit development. I think that still gives you the same interaction between people, support of the arts. I had this weird thing when I was... I think it was in high school, maybe a little bit in college, where I always wanted to work as if I was not in the art world. I would love to work in live music in some capacity. Like I always kind of wanted to be somebody who like was a stage manager or something like that. So that's my like secret, maybe not so secret anymore, dream now. But um, yeah, I think realistically it'd be something still with some of the same tenets of the job that I do now. So working with people, supporting the arts, um, and yeah, still being able to be fulfilled with, with that sort of thing in my everyday life. Would you be a performer? Do you play an instrument? You were a dancer. <laughs> I was a dancer. I played the, or I used to play the piano. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I have it in me probably, but um, I don't know. Maybe it was just something about the inner workings of putting a performance together um, that I always just really enjoyed. So the auction world's a notorious place uh, for being both having a fast pace and also low compensation. What advice would you give to someone who wants to work in an auction house? I think this is just general career advice. Um, I think if you're just getting started, persistence, I think, is very important. Talk to as many people as you can talk to. 
read as much as you can read. Don't take no for an answer. Keep trying. Um, you know, if when I first applied um, to work at Christie's, if I had turned around after the first time they said no, I wouldn't have ended up there. But, you know, I applied to every job that was available, built a rapport with the HR person, um, and eventually that led me in the right direction. So I think persistence is really important and keeping an open mind. The art world is fantastic in that you can work as part of it in many different ways. And in an auction house, you can be an attorney, you can be a business manager, you can be a graphic designer, you can work in our marketing department. There's so many different ways in which you can keep a finger in the art world. Just finding your way, foot in the door, uh, I think is key. And at the end of the day, it's about being you know, a, a good self-starter and, and getting out there and having good work ethic, which is probably relevant for any job. But I, I think those tenants and um, will will help you get where you want to be. Yeah, I completely agree. Persistence is is a necessary virtue, but also making friends with, with your HR department, your HR representative. That's, <laughs> that's the simple, you know, the dirty truth, I guess, right? Yeah. Right. And, and know, you know, know what's what's going on in, in the greater art world. There's so many fantastic, great art resources to read these days. And hopefully they all survive, you know, what's going on in the world. But you look at the art newspaper locally, we have Glass Tire. I mean, all these resources um, and all the museums right now putting out all this material. There's so much to consume. Um, so it seems like you're leaving an opportunity to learn on the table if you're not taking some of that in. Absolutely. It's kind of an overload right now. This kind of goes back to collecting, but also your your passion for, for art and all of the art you've seen. If you could own any work of art in the world, you know, a masterpiece, if you could steal it and nobody would know that you had oh, it, man. what would it be? That's a really hard choice. Um, I know what my husband's is. He would go after the, the Jasper Johns flag. That's his... <laughs> His holy grail that he loves. Um, I I think I would go for something like a Van Gogh or Vermeer. If I really was going to go after the best thing in the world, I'd, I'd probably do Starry Night or, or something like that. Yeah, I think a Vermeer would, would, would be quite something to have because there's only like, there's under 30. Four, 30 10 or something. <laughs> yeah. or something. So my final question for you that I ask everyone, uh, there's no crystal ball, but if I gave you a magic wand, what would be your wish for the art world? I would hope that there's something we can all take away from this time. Um, you know, I, I think it's very easy to launch headfirst back into all the crazy programming and a million art fairs. Um, I think there's been something sort of special about this moment that we've been given to think about um, what we're all doing and um, how the art world functions. Um, I don't know exactly what it is that would carry over. Um, maybe it's just being a little bit more thoughtful. Maybe it's making things more democratic, whatever it is. I do hope that there's something positive that comes out of all of this and that we don't find ourselves, you know, a year from now, just doing the same old rat race. I hate to use that phrase, but it sort of feels like that right now, right? Like looking back at how, how things were. Um, so I think we want the excitement back. We, we, we of course, uh, you know, want the economy to get better and everyone to stay safe. Um, but I think we should really be thoughtful about finding some takeaways here. And, you know, is there a better way for an art fair to function? Um, you know, are there better ways for um, clients to interact with galleries? All of these things. Um, there's just so many opportunities to innovate. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what 
preserve remains uh, once once we get back to normal. Yeah, survival is certainly kind of the the most critical yeah. uh, issue that um, many of the people I've been talking with have advocated for. That's the wish, you know. There's so many, but also it's going to kind of serve as a reset for a lot of the things that weren't working. The art fair circuit is certainly going to change, and um, your business is going to yeah. change. Um, yeah, I think, and, yeah. and hopefully it's going to be better for artists too. Now yeah. that everything is going digital, hopefully finding a, a better way to to support them, whether it's selling art online, which I think is always going to be difficult, um, or just exposure, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I think all very good points. So um, we shall see. Yeah, thank you so much, Charlie. I really of course it. happy to do it. Happy to see your face during this pandemic. Likewise, <laughs> likewise. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Artroverted. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to join us next week for a special episode featuring two guests, Ty Bishop, publisher of Friend of the Artist, and Natasha Arslan, founder of AuckArt, an online auction house for emerging artists. Remember, when it comes to art, it doesn't matter if you're introverted or extroverted, because you can always be artroverted. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you soon. <laughs>